Welcome to the latest edition of Talking About Methods and the topic we're going to be talking about today is positionality. I'm really delighted to introduce you all to Mark Massoud, who's a professor of politics and legal studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he directs the legal studies program and serves affiliated faculty with the Center for the Middle East and North Africa. Mark also holds an appointment as a visiting professor at the Center for Sociolegal Studies in the University of Oxford. And he's the author of two books, Sharia Inshallah, Finding God in Somali Legal Politics, which received the Hart SLSA Book Prize, and Law Fragile State, Colonial, Authoritarian and Humanitarian Legacies in Sudan, which received the Herbert Jacob Book Prize from the Law and Society Association. So Mark, we've already hinted at the sort of work that you do, but I wonder if you could just tell our audience a little bit more about the socio-legal research you do. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast today. The kind of socio-legal research I do is, as all socio-legal research is, very interdisciplinary. So I draw largely on the fields uh, of law, broadly in the social sciences, to think about the relationship between law, politics, and religion across times and places. So my first book, which you mentioned, Law's Fragile State, uh, is based on archival research and fieldwork in the UK and also in Sudan about the ways that states are constructed through their legal systems, the way that state officials, state builders build nations through courts. So I don't look at necessarily what happens inside of courts, but the very fact that courts exist is an interesting sociological or sociolegal phenomenon to me. When I was in graduate school in the United States back in the early 2000s, I was assigned, I was in a law and society PhD program, and I was assigned a lot of readings on history and theory and empirical studies in law and society. And most or all of those readings were based on research that had been done in the United States, to some extent in Western Europe, but largely in the United States, a little bit in Canada. And I realized that there's very little work that's happening, or at least it's being assigned to graduate students that's happening in other parts of the world, in Africa and Southeast Asia and East Asia. And being someone who comes from Sudan, I realized, what if I went back to this place, to Sudan, to study its legal system and its legal history and the ways that people, the politics of its court systems and the ways that people use courts, whether it's a women's rights activists, whether it's anti-colonial activists who were making their claims in colonial courts. And so my first book really traces this history of the establishment of law in Sudan from the British colonial administration in the uh, late 19th century and first half of the 20th century through to the present day. When I finished writing that book, I realized there was something interesting going on, not only in Sudan, but in lots of other places with regard to religion that it wasn't just law that was doing the work of nation building, but something else was undergirding the law. There was something else that was present in people's minds, in the minds of the nation builders, of uh, civic leaders, uh, even of colonial administrators. And that was religion that religion was kind of this foundation for legal systems, a justification for why legal systems existed, for why courts existed. And so that research actually took me to Somalia and Somaliland for my second book, Sharia Inshallah, which you mentioned, which is not just about the ways that state leaders use law to build nations, but about the ways state leaders use this combination of law and religion, a kind of double helix, like strands of DNA in the nations that we create law and religion uh, sort of as the foundation of nations. And I write about this using the case of Somalia and Somaliland, which some would say, you know, political scientists would say, this is an extreme case. 
It's an outlying case because of its instability. But I write quite at length in the book about the ways that Somalia and Somaliland are not exceptional. That religion and religious faith and the invocation of religion shapes the very foundation of many nations, including the one that I currently live in, the United States. So really that's where my sociolegal research, that's the kind of sociolegal research I do. I try and tell the story of why we have nations, how those nations are even created, really big questions about how our, how we live in the societies that we do, why we establish states or nation states and how we establish those states and why they're long lasting. And largely it's through the creation, I think, of legal systems that provide stability. And that stability is often based on a certain view or a certain invocation of religious faith. So that's the sociolegal research I've been up to. That's a great introduction, Mark. And I'm going to come back to that, I think, as we talk about positionality, because I know the two are very intricately combined. And I think, as you already know, we're really interested in using Frontiers of Socio-Legal Studies, our blog, to encourage people to reflect on their methodology. And we're particularly interested in the politics of methodology. And I think positionality falls really right in the middle of sort of contemporary debates about the politics of methodology. Marie Burton, one of our colleagues here in Oxford, has already written a blog about positionality for Frontiers, about the experience of a black woman being in academia. But I wonder if you could remind the people that are listening to the podcast what we mean by the term positionality and perhaps tell us a little bit more about what's motivated you to enter debate. Thanks for that question. That's it's important. There's a lot of different ways to think about what positionality is. The way I think about it is part of what we do as scholars, it constitutes our identities and our experiences. And expressing that, expressing the way that what we do as scholars constitutes our identities and our experiences is positionality. So I would define positionality as giving greater attention in the research that we do, in the writing that we do, to how our self-identifications, our marginalization, and also our professional and other, maybe our class privileges or our class background, our racial or ethnic or gender identity backgrounds, how all of these things, including, as I said, our professional privileges that we have as you know, professors in research universities, how all of these things influence the kind of research that we're able to do, the questions that we're able to ask, the methods that we use, the data that we collect, our analysis process, our writing. This is often, many people have talked about their positionality, especially more recently, and I'm happy to talk about that because the paper I've re recently published on positionality, increasingly a number of younger scholars, early career scholars are talking about their positionality. Now you see in articles, in journal articles, not just statements of research methods or sections, subsections called research methods, but subsections titled methods and positionality where scholars will talk about what methods they use, but also how their identities and privileges and experiences and background influence their methods and their analysis and their writing process. So that's positionality. Some scholars, especially feminist scholars, have talked about this for, for decades. This is not a new topic. This is not a new topic. Um, they've referred to I use the term positionality, but feminist scholars have referred to terms like standpoint. Other scholars have used terms like reflexivity. So standpoint and reflexivity are other terms that are used in describing one's kind of subject position. I see these as largely interchangeable ways of talking about how we insert ourselves or how we bring ourselves more directly into our scholarship. 
These terms have different genealogies, but they're largely interchangeable ways of how scholars bring themselves into their research. And let me say this to close in answering this particular question. For many scholars, and I, I want to say this early on in our discussion today, for many scholars, positionality is not something that someone does just in a method section. Positionality is the basis of the research. One's self-identity, one's self-reflection on their identity is the basis of their research. I'm thinking of people like Patricia Williams. And, and many others in critical race theory who've you know, used their own identity and personal experiences of discrimination and harm in the academy and also outside the academy to say something different about the law, about the role of law in people's lives. And so for many of these people, positionality is not just part of the conversation, it is the entire conversation in itself. So I'll pause there so that we could go on. I mean, I like to see it as the methodological arm in many ways of critical race theory and feminism because theories of difference have to sort of give birth, I suppose, to completely different ways of looking at ourselves as a researcher. And as you're talking, I'm thinking that a number of our listeners will be early career academics who will be just getting to grips with the basics of methods or methodology, possibly. And I think one of the reasons that positionality is so important is it takes us away from the model of social science that focuses too much on the possibility of objectivity, I think. That's the really important. It makes us realise the influence that we are having before we even open our mouths on the research that we're doing. I think your work brings that out really well. And could I ask you, Mark, what are the key themes which arise from your work on positionality? I know the article that you had just produced for the Journal of Law and Society very well, and I've really enjoyed it. But I wonder if that might be a starting point for you to talk through what you think the key arguments to be made around positionality are. The way I understand the question is around the benefits of positionality, the benefits of expressing how one's identifications or background or privileges or marginalization, if they wish to share that comes into their scholarship or shapes the kind of research that they're able to do or the data they're able to gather. So that is one of the benefits, I think, of positionality is being able to share that, having that kind of tough conversation with oneself that I was never trained to have, that I think many of us in the field of law and society and sociolegal studies were not trained to have. It's not easy to, to do academic research. It's intellectually taxing. I recently read an article about how hard work, hard intellectual work, it can be exhausting to the brain in the same way that hard physical labor can be exhausting to the body and the brain is a muscle like any other in the body. And adding that layer sort of of meta thinking where you're not only thinking about the data, but you're thinking about yourself in the data can also be exhausting. But there are a lot of benefits to it. There are a lot of benefits to it. And one of the benefits, Linda, is one that you mentioned, which is challenging social science epistemologies of objectivity, that somehow we are these neutral observers of things that are happening out there and that we are maybe not impacting our research. Through positionality, scholars can understand or readers can understand how a scholar gained access uh, in a particular environment, uh, maybe because they share particular background characteristics with the people whom they interviewed or met in their fieldwork. Um, it can establish an author's credibility, maybe how they learned a language or if they come from a particular place. I think positionality for some, for a lot of people, is about creating a personal connection with readers and building communities, uh, communities that often share an, an identity characteristic. 
If someone is of an immigrant background and they're reading an article about immigration written by an author who themselves is an immigrant or has an immigrant experience, maybe an undocumented immigrant experience, that can build communities of trust where you know people can say, I want to reach out to that author. I see that author as part of my community. Um, some young people used to like to adopt the word tribe, like these people are part of my tribe. And I see that in, you know, happening in the scholarship. It creates connections, creates linkages, potential collaborations. Um, so all of these things are benefits of positionality. I remember interviewing for the article that I wrote that you mentioned in Journal of Law and Society called The Price of Positionality. I remember interviewing a Black woman professor in the United States, and she said something to me that was very powerful about positionality. She said, we write our way out of our trauma to help others and also to help ourselves. People's identities and backgrounds cannot be left at their fingertips before they start typing at the keyboard. They flow through the fingertips into the articles, into the books. And, I, and that is important to a lot of people. That itself, I think that conversation is important to a lot of people. And I wanted to pick up on this important moment that I think we're in, where more and more people are starting to do that in the social sciences broadly, and especially in the field of law and society. I suppose it's important to stress, isn't it, as well, that positionality isn't just something for marginalised groups. I mean, it is a literature that has tended to come out of feminism or critical race theory or queer theory. But beyond those groups, I mean, positionality is something for everyone. I think we do want those who've traditionally been in positions of power within the academy to also reflect about the impact that who they are or the colour of their skin or their experiences also has on the sort of data that they collect. Absolutely. I completely agree with that sentiment that positionality should not be something that people who are marginalized use to talk about their marginalization. I think that's one way of thinking about positionality, but everyone has an identification, a set of experiences and backgrounds, different levels of marginalization that they experience in society or in the academy, and also different levels, as I said, of privilege that people experience. And I think positionality is about getting a sense of all of that. And the difficulty then is somehow showing or displaying in an article what aspects of identity were salient in the process of doing one's research. And I think that's what's really difficult. How do you reduce all of that and all of the... Um, the ways that, you know, for a lot of people, identity is very fluid as we think about gender identity and people sort of reaffirming gender identity or adopting different kinds of pronouns in, in their gender identities. The fluidity of gender and other aspects of people's backgrounds and identities makes positionality seem unstable, yet it has to be sort of reduced to a few sentences in a methods section in a paper. Let me be careful. I don't want to say it has to be because I don't want to say that people should or must provide statements of positionality. I think people should feel free to share their positionality if it's relevant, but also to withhold it if they need to for privacy reasons or for whatever other reasons. I think that should be up to the individual author. So I'm not here to say, you know, all scholars must in every article include statements of positionality. Rather, all scholars should be attuned to the importance of positionality through all levels of their own research and writing. And if it comes out in the writing, great. If it doesn't come out in the writing, great. But at least one is attuned to it so that when one reads about it, and it is, as you said, Linda, it is actually mostly, at least in law and society, it is mostly women and people of color who are expressing statements of positionality positionality, at least in the major research journals, so that when people read those, whether they are people of color, women, white men, or others, so that when people read these statements of positionality, they know how much work goes into just saying a few statements of positionality. 
Could you tell us what insights you think the discussion of positionality contributes to socio-legal methodologies or socio-legal studies more generally? And I wonder if you might be able to draw on some examples from your own fieldwork experiences. There, there are lots of insights that positionality provides. As I said earlier, it can help people understand how someone had access. So in the start of my very first book, I write about how someone who is originally from Sudan goes back to this place where my parents never feel, felt safe to return after they fled in the early 1980s when I was a young boy. How I went back to this place and how many people received me with open arms. They knew about the time period my parents left and how a lot of people left at this time. And they were excited to see a young person return. And that gave me access to a lot of people. Similarly, when I was doing research in Somalia, Somaliland, and people found out I was from Sudan, even though they knew I was also from America. I speak Arabic with a very American accent, very Americanized because I moved to the United States as a child. People were happy to see me, someone of, you know, different kind of multicultural backgrounds in the United States and Sudan coming to Somalia to study this different places, legal history, even though I'm not of Somali origin, people were still happy. Many Somalis called me their cousin. They called me their cousin because they were happy to see someone from neighboring Sudan, you know, via America to come be with them. So I was able to explain my access. Something I wish I did more of in my books, in both books, is explain my own privileges as someone. I've done this in some articles, but I haven't done this in a lot of my research is explain how the privileges of being an academic at the University of California or a visiting professor with you at the University of Oxford. These are privileges that provide me with space to do research, that provide me with intellectual atmospheres to ask big questions about state building and nation building. They provide me access to archival records at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. They provide me with research funding so that I could pay for expensive plane tickets to the African continent and also within the African continent. Sometimes, as many African scholars will know if they're listening, it's often cheaper to fly from Africa to Europe than it is to fly from one place in Africa to another place in Africa. And I was able to apply for small research grants through my university. The fact that my university even had funding to give me those grants. These are all things that I'm extremely grateful for that I still struggle to find space to write about in my own work because I don't want to distract from the core message of the data. But I also want to show people that I was able to do this research precisely because of the privileges I had of being a professor. My parents never graduated from university. There are many people in academia who are also first-generation university students. And I see that I see these privileges that I have as an academic. It's a very privileged position to be a professor, to be able to think and ask these big questions, to shape the way scholars are thinking about the work they do, about these big questions, as I said, about how we build states, why we build states, how states last, the role of law and religion in states. And I think I'm only able to do that because of the access I've had and because of the privileges that I've had. Noting that, noticing that, that is part of positionality. Even this discussion we're having is an expression of positionality. And that's why I'm glad there's a space for this Through the Frontiers blog that you've organized, through this podcast. There's space for us to talk about some of these bigger issues that I and I know others have struggled to kind of fit into the dialogue that our books create and that our articles create in our scholarship. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to your answer to the next question, because one of the things I really admire you for, Mark, is all the work that you do with early career academics. And I know how much that's really important to you to sort of mentor and bring youngsters on. So I wonder if I could ask you what advice you'd give your younger self about doing socio-legal research. 
Oh, that is a really tough question. <laughs> that is a really tough question. That's like, you know, going to the level of therapy and working on the inner child. But it is a very important question. I think it's a really important question. And it's one that I'm really grateful even to have the space to think about, that I have you know, enough food on the table and I don't have to do what my parents did, where I have to flee a country to go to another country that's safer, where you don't have a chance, where one doesn't have a chance to even think about and think through these questions. What advice would you give your younger self that I have that freedom to think through a question like that? And I think for me, you know, getting back to positionality, I don't know if it's part of the immigrant experience or other sets of experiences that I've had, but I've always tried to prove that I can be just as good as or better than uh, people who I saw in the majority. And I wish I could tell my younger self that that doesn't matter. A good friend of mine says, compare and despair. And I think scholars are really good at comparing ourselves to other people. There's always someone who's better. There's always someone who's smarter. There's always someone who has a, a more amazing book in our view. There's always someone who's better looking or stronger or publishes more. There's a better teacher, whatever it is. And that's completely okay. First of all, that's our own projection of what we think that person is that they may not be actually better or smarter or publishing more or whatever it is, but that is our projection. And secondly, that that doesn't matter. And that's something I'm slowly trying to come to understand. And so that's kind of advice I would give to my younger self. And I know that's not advice necessarily about doing socio-legal research. It's just advice about being a scholar. It comes down to sort of trusting yourself, trusting your experience, whether it's an experience of privilege or marginalization. For a lot of us, a combination of those. If you notice, even during this interview, I've tried to reflect on my own marginalization while also balancing that with my own awareness of my own privilege and the privileges that I've created and been a part of. You know, the fact that my parents were even able to bring me to the United States as a child is a huge privilege. There were many people from Sudan who weren't able to make that journey. The advice I have, so that's kind of bigger, bigger picture, kind of meta level advice. The more, the advice I have about doing socio-legal research itself is to be question oriented to think about the surprises that are out there, not just try to think about, you know, how do I contribute to this great article I read or this set of books in this field? That's important. Your advisors and supervisors will, of course, want you to do that. But try and look for the surprises. Try and ask questions. And if the questions lend themselves to thinking about sociology, then do sociology. If the questions lend themselves to thinking about a combination of sociology and art and history, then you better be doing sociology and art and history to answer that question. The questions lend themselves to thinking about a combination of anthropology and law and critical race theory, then by, you know, you better be thinking about anthropology and law and critical race theory to answer that question. You better be going outside of specific fields to answer the questions. It's hard for me to say this, but I, I want to say it. It's important for me to share this. The recent book that I wrote, Sharia, inshallah, I was so grateful it received recognition in multiple fields in law and society. It recently received an award in political science and also in the sociology of religion. It's extremely meaningful for me, very moving for me to know that doing socio-legal research that is very question-driven can have an influence on how people think about questions in their own fields in sociology of religion and political science and socio-legal studies. That's really powerful. And so that's the advice I would give to my younger self is continue to ask questions, continue to be curious and continue to be unafraid to go into multiple fields to answer the questions that you need to answer, to share the things that you want to share with the world.
That's really great advice, Mark. And I particularly, as you will already guess, really agree with you about surprises. You know, there's no point in doing research unless you're prepared to be surprised. If you know the answer already, you don't need to do research. So I think that's really good to be question orientated. That stuck with me. You've very kindly recommended three texts for people interested in what we've been talking about to read. And I wondered if you could just talk us through your choices. First of all, you've recommended Cheating Welfare. Take us through why you've recommended that. I recommended a book by Karen Gustafson called Cheating Welfare. This book received, I think, the 2013 Law and Society Association Herbert Jacob Prize for its research on largely African-American women receiving welfare payments and their orientations around law and society based on fieldwork in a county in California. I don't recommend this book. I mean, I do recommend this book for its research, but the reason I recommended this book is not just for its research, it's for its appendix on methods and positionality. Professor Gustafson is intentionally first person in her writing about positionality, the kind of visceral experience of she's a black woman who uses a wheelchair doing research with other black women who some of whom look down upon her because during the course of her research, she's often she's seen in a wheelchair holding her infant child on her lap. And so many of the people she meets in the course of her research open up to her in different kinds of ways because they see her almost as some of them see her as almost as, as less than themselves because of her situation or project, or they see her as one of them. Her research, she talks quite openly and candidly about the difficulties of her research and, and even expresses how the research was so difficult dealing with identity and background and marginalization in the process of building her own scholarly career and in the process of doing this research that she almost hopes she never has to do this kind of research again. It's extremely powerful stuff. And so I recommend that book not just for the power of its research, but also the power of the way that Professor Gustafson talks about positionality and methods in the conclusion. I actually teach, excuse me, not the conclusion, but the methodological appendix at the end of the book. The second book is In the Moment of Greatest Calamity by Susan Hirsch. Yeah, so I recommend this powerful legal ethnography of courts in the aftermath of September, excuse me, in the aftermath of uh, not only September 11th, but terrorism trials as a result of the 1998 East African embassy bombings, which Professor Hirsch herself survived and which her husband, Jamal, had been killed in those bombings in East Africa in 1998. She writes about her experiences as a survivor, as a widow in the course of these trials, and as someone who is trying to get justice in the legal system and learn about the legal system in the course of these trials. So that's why I included this book, because it's a, it's a it also, I think, received the Volunt Society Association Herbert Jacob Book Prize, I think back in 2006 or 2007, but it's an extremely powerful, intellectual, and personal look at the quest for justice in the court system and the failings of legal systems in the process, but also the ways that legal systems are, you know, they are what we have in the quest for justice, how they work, and also their dysfunctions at the same time through the lens of a survivor herself. And Hirsch makes many efforts throughout the book, especially early on, to reach out to the reader by expressing her own positionality as a survivor. That's great. And your third choice is Conducting Law and Society Research, a volume of essays that have been collected together by Simon Halliday and Patrick Schmidt, which is also one of my favourites. I set this a lot in our methodology course. So tell me why you like it so much. 
So I like it and I also have some issues with it and I'll describe both. So I, I like the book because many of the law and society scholars whom I first encountered when I was a graduate student 20 years ago, this book provides a space for those law and society scholars who wrote some of the groundbreaking work in sort of the first or 1.5 generation of sociolegal research. This book, Conducting Law and Society Research, published with Cambridge University Press, I think in 2009, I want to say, really provided a space. It's a book that conducts a series of interviews. Halliday and Schmidt conduct interviews with leading sociolegal scholars about their groundbreaking work in the field. And their work really was groundbreaking in the field. I appreciate the ways that it created space for these scholars to talk about how they did their research, the complicated things that came up in the course of their research. Research often looks, when it's published, it looks really clean. Like there were no messes, there was nothing, you know, but research is very messy. And reading these scholars talk about the messiness of their work, the serendipity of how things happened. You think it's planned and all organized this way, but actually it was, it just kind of worked out through the chance conversations that made the research click in the author's brain, that made the author's work come to life for the rest of us. It really kind of uncovers and exposes all of that. The book is also of, a, so this is some of the issues I have with the book, it also is of a certain time. I think most of the people who are interviewed in that book would probably identify as white men, not even white women. There are very few white women, almost no people of color represented in that book. I'm actually editing a book volume right now on positionality with uh, Lynette Chua of National University of Singapore. And the authors whom we feature in that book almost entirely identify as women or people of color or both. So we're sort of writing a second generation volume to conducting law and society research. Also, it will be published by Cambridge University Press, also in the Cambridge Studies in Law and Society. And I think that the new generation of socio-legal scholars who are thinking about a lot of these questions who are breaking new ground in the field of law and society are doing it while thinking about their subject positions in their work. And so we invite a number of scholars in this kind of next generation, maybe the two, 2.5 generation of law and society scholars who come from countries around the world to reflect on their research, much in the same way Halliday and Schmidt invited the kind of earlier generation. So that volume should be coming out. Again, it's called Out of Place, and it should be coming out in the next year or so in 2023, maybe late 2023, early 2024. Well, I'm really glad to hear that you're doing that update. That sounds fantastic. And it also sounds like something we should be reviewing on Frontiers of Sociolegal Studies. So do keep us up to date with the progress of that book. There's one other publication which we're adding to the list of further reading for people who might be interested in taking some of these issues forward. And that's something that you've already mentioned, which is an article that you've written, The Price of Positionality, which has come out online in the Journal of Law and Society. And that's part of two special issues that have been put together on methodology and encouraging people to dig deep and think about methodological issues and not just method. Is there anything you wanted to say about that, Mark? One thing I did with that article was um, examine the last 55 years of law and society scholarship appearing on the pages of two of the oldest English language law and society journals, the Journal of Law and Society published in the UK and the Law and Society Review published through the Law and Society Association, which is based in the United States. And I examined 55 years of articles in both of those journals and found something like 23 articles where the authors expressly discussed their positionality or related search terms that I used. And this article that I wrote in the Journal of Law and Society, it's an open access article. Anyone in the world can find it through the journal. Uh, if you Google Journal of Law and Society, the price of positionality, it should come up. 
There are only 23 articles where authors expressly discuss their positionality out of the thousands of articles, research articles that were published in both of these journals. But what's interesting to note is of those 23 articles, I think one third of them were published since 2020. And we're doing this interview in mid-2022. So positionality is something that is, we're, we're at a moment. We're at an inflection point where more scholars uh, than ever are thinking seriously about positionality. And I think a lot of them, as you mentioned, are early career scholars who are thinking about their identities, their backgrounds, their privileges in the context of their work and thinking about their work in the context of their identities and background and privileges. They're doing it in a way that I think is helpful and ultimately can change the way we think about the law's claims to power and the law's claims to controlling identity itself. So I think it has a lot of substantive value, not just methodological value. That's great. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a great privilege to talk to you today. And I know that a lot of what you've said will have resonance with a lot of early career scholars and be really inspiring to them. So thank you so much. Let's keep that debate going on positionality. But for now, thank you so much for giving up your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this Talking About Methods session. If you'd like to see the list of publications that we referred to in the podcast, please go to frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk. If you have any ideas for a blog or a podcast, please do get in touch with Linda Mulcahy at the Centre for Sociolegal Studies. Thanks again. Bye.